What a delightful opportunity it is this Sunday morning to come, to assemble together in the way that we are. We're so thankful that God has been good to us in this way and thankful, of course, that we can offer to Him the heartfelt appreciation of worship that you and I feel today. Holy ground. That's going to be the topic, the discussion point, if you please, for our lesson this morning. The consideration of holy ground. And almost instantly to our mind comes that scene to which we remember the reading that Brother John read a moment ago from Acts chapter 7, borrowed quite frankly from Exodus chapter 3. These introductory comments will not only center your thoughts a bit on that part, but lead us into the more detailed aspects of the lesson today. May I suggest to you that holy ground is an important subject. It is, in fact, critical and vital in so many ways, and I'm not talking about holy acreage. There is no parcel of physical territory on earth today any more special or holy than anywhere else. I know there are some who feel as if some part of that physical nation of Israel is exceedingly vital. You can worship God as acceptably here as you can there. And there is no business in the Bible about a thousand-year literal reign on earth. In fact, Wednesday night, we're about to get to Revelation pretty quick, wherein that chapter sets before us what that's about. The lesson today isn't going to be about that, obviously. But what we are going to discuss is holy ground. Because Moses, in fact, was told about some. And in fact, as you come to the bottom of that slide, we're going to notice that that explicit phrase, holy ground, only occurs twice in the Bible. One of them was our lesson text from Acts 7, that masterpiece of a sermon that Stephen delivered wherein he challenged those of his day to recognize what Moses had done, and not only that, but what Jesus had done. The other one is in Exodus chapter number 3. And this setting is drawn from that second passage. There was a man who was age 80. Now from your perspective and mine, he was no spring chicken, And yet here he was, a man who by that point in his life had arrived at this special station. He was tending his father-in-law's flock there on the wilderness in the Middle Eastern part of of, of our world. As he did so on Mount Horeb, the backside quite frankly of it, something incredibly unusual happened. In fact, it was momentous. A bush was on fire. The angel of the Lord had made it so. And instantly, as Moses' attention was drawn to it, he noticed it wasn't being consumed. Though this bush was flaming with fire, it wasn't burning up. Moses' intrigue was such that he began to turn and to inquire as to the character of it. And instantly and thunderously, a voice from God was heard by saying, Moses, Moses, the one speaking to him knew Moses' name. God knows all of our names. He knows everything about us. But the first thing that God told him, Moses, take the shoes off your feet, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Now may I suggest to you what was making this holy, and the circumstances surrounding it was not the holy acreage. It was not the physical territory. What made it holy was who was there. God was there. That angel, that was the representation of, of course, the great God of heaven, it would appear that was the second member of the Godhead. And not only that, we appreciate in it the following truth. Moses, the ancient peoples, knew well that you couldn't see God and expect to live. Moses, take the shoes off your feet, 
God's here. What God has established and what He has ordained and what He has solidified has by that very nature an element of sanctity and an element of holiness and an element of consecrated nature. And for that reason, the human family must understand the truth. It's not to be tampered with. And as a significance of that truth, here Moses, being this near to God, take the shoes off your feet. Now today we aren't in the business of removing our shoes. That's not what this worship service is about. But what we are in the business of doing is reminding for the next few moments in ourselves, what about this holy ground? And what are some aspects spoken of in the Bible from God, etched and highlighted due to Him, that should understand in you and me a great element of holiness? We're only going to look at a handful of them today, but let's begin with this one. I know that we're all under the appreciation because we see it so terribly often. The church, it's easy to undervalue it. It's easy to, in fact, look upon it as, quite frankly, not nearly the specialness with which it was invested. And there are really two things that easily can be said to to bring that about. One, the terrible nature of denominationalism. In fact, so many religious organizations having all kinds of names and activities and approaches and worship styles and everything else you can imagine. And the human family is under the illusion one of them is as good as another one. Jesus never died for all of them. He died for one church. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what men may claim. He died for one. And quite frankly, heaven only proclaims one. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And therefore, this bane of denominationalism encourages the devaluing of the church. But you and I need to appreciate the church is holy ground. It really is such that you and I should appreciate the great respect that must exist within us because that's what God respects. Look at some of this development. The testimony of the Word of God has remained unchanged throughout all these years. To the fact that Colossians 1.18 says it like this, He, that's Christ, is the head of the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Now maybe in light of that discussion, you appreciate that all the preeminence that rests with Him, the fact that He is the head of the church, and that specialness brings us to realize we haven't merely come today to engage in just something that happens once a week. Oh, it's true that worship is that important, but the church is eternally significant. Could we go so far as to say this, and I don't say this lightly, and I know none of us feel it lightly either. Any person who's reached the age of accountability, and I say any, who is not a faithful member of the church of Christ is lost. I say that because that's what the Bible teaches. And therefore, the church must be viewed as Ephesians 5.23 presents it. Christ is the Savior of the body. And if you're not in the body, then you can't be saved. I know that's strong language. But that's what our Savior died to establish. And the holy ground then that is the church must redound in you and me the fact that these events, that for which the church stands... She really is the pillar and ground of the truth, to borrow the wording of 1 Timothy 
the nature of that holy ground leads you to some of these verses. In Ephesians 3 verse 21, some have called that book of Ephesians that book that highlights the reality of the church of the Christ. And yet, as that verse brings us this point, it says, He, that is to say the Christ, is such that He has not only all preeminence, but it's highlighted in these words. This Jesus, this church, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. May I suggest to you, we, don't, we can't glorify God apart from the church. Oh, we might live a life the world would regard as good. And we might live a life that the world might regard as noble and pious and appropriate. But apart from the church, we cannot glorify God. Because that verse says we can't. And therefore, we must be faithful members of the body of Christ. Delighted to be in that position and excited to be servants of the Master. The holy ground of the church. You and I will remember how often Paul felt that way. In almost all of the books he wrote, he began that book thanking God for the congregation to which he was writing. Thankful for their faithfulness, their loyalty, their love, and their devotion. And thankful for their prayers directed to God on his behalf. Surely, we at the Pippin congregation, we're thrilled to be a part of the family of God. And we're thrilled to appreciate in us the opportunity that's ours because we respect the holy ground. Just as Moses was told to take off his shoes, the ground where he was, this nearness to God was holy. So too the church should be regarded that way as well. As you'll notice, you're at the bottom of that slide. It challenges us, doesn't it? What's my attitude toward the church? Have I allowed my participation in it to be a habit and no more? Is it just a ritual of life that I just do a time or two or three a week? Or... Am I thrilled about what that really means? For that's holy ground. There's going to come a moment when, of course, all of us shall stand before the God of heaven in judgment. And when we appreciate the reality of that moment, what else is going to matter? One needs to be faithful. One verse I've listed there is Revelation 19. Now that's going to be the first chapter we're going to look at in some detail when we take up our next study of the Revelation. But in Revelation 19, we have an amazing image. It truly is breathtaking in its scope. Not to spoil all the fun of when that study is going to come before us, but we have there a picture of the church. But it's a picture that should cause to dwell within you and me a reality of understanding holy ground. Having said that, let's close that slide and maybe ask about another. For there's, of course, some other things about holy ground, and not only is the church one of them. What about this one? I've simply entitled it Moral Purity. Again, there are two rather strong things that seemingly wage war against this truth. Isn't it true that there are many in our world who really aren't that interested in things religious in character? They go about their life day by day, and they seemingly live fine. They've got food to eat, and they've got a roof over their head, and they've got good jobs in many ways. And so they perhaps have reached the point, why do I need the Lord, and why do I need the Bible? Why do I need to live purely? I've got all I want. 
And there are even those in religious circles who, quite frankly, would sometimes question it because of their misteaching on forgiveness. Well, why do I have to exert such effort to be pure? After all, God is a God of grace and forgiveness, and I'll just get forgiveness for my mistake, and I'll just go ahead and enjoy this for the moment. Both of those are so wrong. Though it's true God is a God of forgiveness, He demands that those who would please and love Him would exert effort and endeavorment to live a life of moral purity. Now, you and I know our world is not going to encourage moral purity. For all practical purposes, it says do what you want, when you want, the way you want, as long as you don't offend in some egregious fashion and everything will be fine. But God says you've got to do better than that. Why? Because God says be ye holy for I am holy. We can't be the servants of God and not be holy. We can't seemingly excuse immoral behavior just by claiming that God will forgive it. Sounds a bit like those in the book of Romans in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, doesn't it? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I just do more sin and be thankful for God's gracious forgiveness? And Paul says, no, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, God demands of us a highlighted appreciation of that kind of moral, pristine, upright, godly living that we find in the Word of God. Let's develop some of those points like this. The society in which we live, I paint a dramatically bad picture and you know it well. I noticed in that period of time between when the Bible study ended and the worship service began, there was ongoing conversation about how awful sometimes the presentation of society can be. It really is a moral cesspool, isn't it? I'm sure like you, I tire of hearing the news. I tire of hearing the choices, sexual blunders, sinfulness in a a variety of ways that's portrayed, it seems, multiple times on every news segment. And to say all of that is to say nothing new. We don't live in a society that encourages godliness in so many ways. Look at some of these verses. The Bible testimony strongly comes to you and me and it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. How much plainer could that have been? James made that statement now well over 1,900 years ago in James 4, verse 4. And if he said that relative to ancient Rome, is anything less than that worthwhile to be said concerning modern United States of America? You and I must never use the choices of society to determine our standard for right conduct. God demands moral purity. Let's add to that the next one in Titus 2, verse 12. Wasn't it there that Paul again wrote to a gentleman named Titus who was stationed where? On the island of Crete. And in the ancient world, I suppose few, if any, would have been more highly understood as sensual and ungodly than was the island of Crete. And listen to what Paul told that man. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. 
Titus, you can't let the society of Crete determine what you do is wrong or right. Rather, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that determines that for us and it sets before us what is holy and just and right. As you add to that the following passage in 1 Timothy 5.22, here Timothy was stationed in Ephesus, yet a different place yet. And Timothy had his own challenges, and among them were these. Timothy, lay hands suddenly on no man. Keep thyself pure. Timothy, you've got to stay pure. You can put your name in that particular verse if you like, and same for me. For that principle, that lesson is for all of us. Perhaps in part, isn't it easy to sense that as our society continues its evolvement in a way that's not good. It's easy to be desensitized and it's easy to allow one's own standard to perhaps in flux move to lesser and lesser heights. My friend, we can't do it. We mustn't allow that to happen. What's wrong and right has long since ago been determined and moral purity God demands. Let's look at the next verse. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 22, as Paul neared the end of that Thessalonian letter, again, one of the first ones he would have written, he said, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, again, that, that's a very, very broad and strong presentation. One by one, as we've looked at all of them, aren't we reminded, and we even saw it a bit in our Bible class this morning, how that humans have a masterpiece, prompted no doubt by the devil, of rationalizing things, justifying behavior that God says is wrong, but excusing it somehow or other. May I suggest to all of us, moral purity is a place of holy ground. God again said in 1 Peter 1.16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In Hebrews 12.14 says, Without holiness no man will see the Lord. If you want to go to heaven, if I want to go to heaven... We've got to live with moral purity and holiness. And if we don't, we ought not expect to go to heaven. One last thing. In 2 Peter 1, as the Christian graces are listed for us, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance and furthermore down the list. All we need to do is pause so far and note, add to your faith virtue. What may I ask is virtue? Virtue means moral excellence. That very thing must be a vital platform and foundation in your life and mine. And so the question then that must be asked of all of us is the one that closes the bottom. Are you and I pursuing this as seriously as the holy ground of the Bible demands it to be? Now our third example in a moment is going to be a case in point of strong consideration. I say this reminding us of the culture in which we live. But this third one, it pains me to have to describe it. Just as it does, I know so many in the sound of my voice. Marriage is a place of holy ground. It was established by the sanctity of the God of heaven at the beginning. But yet the human family has reached the point of trying to redefine it trying to reconsider it, attempting to justify various and sundry behaviors. And it does nothing more than paint a dramatically black picture of the kind of society in which we live. 
this development, I've chosen to proceed like this. There was a time when marriage was sufficiently highly regarded, when in fact even a divorce on any grounds was somewhat hard to get. But then, of course, a few decades ago, now you can get divorce on demand. I mean, you don't even have to have a reason for it. Well, now, as you know, in the summer of 2015, our Supreme Court has entered into this discussion in the following way. Legalizing in our land same-sex unions. Virtually unthinkable. Virtually unthinkable. May I suggest to you that there is not a nation on earth throughout all of recorded history that has made the attempt that modern societies like the United States has done. Listen to me carefully. Not even Sodom and Gomorrah did that. Not even ancient Babylon did that. Not even ancient Egypt did that. Not even ancient Rome did that. And some of those societies are regarded as cruel and heinous and ungodly and they never attempted to redefine marriage. Even they understood marriage was between a man and a woman. Even Sodom and Gomorrah knew it. And five justices of the Supreme Court of the United States rendered a verdict in the case of Obergefell in June of 2015 that not only made same-sex unions legal, but stated that every nation in the country has got to respect it. Unthinkable. The holy ground that what God had set forth in marriage men have trampled over the five justices of the Supreme Court who joined in that majority opinion were such that Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion and therefore that's why I list his name. In his particulars as he described it he made reference to two points and then he of course entered into a legal presentation but his two points were these. Number one Marriage is changeable. That is to say, every society can direct it and choose it and present it and make appreciations of it because it's a changeable and fluid entity. That's what he said. And his second point was, it is a natural thing in which individuals are made that way and they have no choice in the matter. And therefore, in the same way that we pursue the reality and the vitality of rights for all people, they've got their rights. He was wrong on both points. Absolutely wrong on both points. I would at least add the other four dissenting judges would agree with you and me at least on these points. They would agree just as Kennedy and the other four were wrong. I paint these dramatic pictures to help us see we live in a society that doesn't respect the holy ground of marriage. Divorce easily gotten, and now same-sex unions, same-sex supposed marriages are also there, of course, to be legally defended. As you come to the bottom of that slide, I just wanted to take this time to show how Justice Kennedy was wrong. Remember, two precepts. The first is this. Is marriage a fluid, changeable thing? He said it is. God says it isn't. 
May I suggest to you, though he may be a part of the Supreme Court of our country, there is a Supreme Court far higher than he. And that Supreme Court has these as his laws. What did he say in Genesis 2? Remember, as God created the human family, wasn't it true? He created Adam. He created the man on day number six of his creative effort. And he quickly observed this. It isn't good for the man to be alone, and he caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam, and from his rib he made a woman. And he brought her to the man. And these statements are now found. First, Adam speaks in Genesis 2.23. He says in particular, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God joins in that description and says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Isn't it interesting that there we had one woman for one man for life? That's the way God made it. That's the way God instituted it. Those were the principles upon which it was to be appreciated. Now at that point, notice, let's transition... 4,000 years later. Notice, I'm passing 4,000 years of history to come to Matthew chapter 19. Now, the Pharisees, before Jesus, ask Him a question. Is it lawful for a man to put his way his wife for every cause? Matthew 19, 3. And in His discussion, He said, Have you not read? There's our problem. There's our problem. Men haven't read the Bible. If Justice Kennedy had read it, with a sense of understanding what's contained within it, he could never have legislated what he did. Jesus said, have you not read, that at the beginning he made them male and female. And he married them. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. To borrow the wording of Matthew 19.6. Notice, 4,000 years passed and nothing had changed yet. And now suddenly 2,000 more years have passed and men think they can redefine what marriage is. They can't. Oh, men may call it marriage. They may describe it in ways and legislate concerning it and make it a legal matter, but they won't change what heaven has decreed. So on precept one, Justice Kennedy was wrong. What about point two? He also said that those who are of this homosexual variety, they're born that way. They cannot change. And this is natural for them. He was wrong again. I'd like to read from Romans chapter 1, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 6. But for now, may I invite you to note this. All we'll read is two verses from Romans 1. As I make ready to read this, let me preface it by saying, the Roman Empire, of course, was known for its cruelty and known for its lewdness and licentiousness. The Roman Caesars were some of the most wicked and ungodly people, sensual in their pursuits and character. And to that people, to the Roman people, Paul wrote this, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one for another. Men with men working that which is unseemly. 
and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Just as Kennedy said it's natural, God said it's unnatural. Just as Kennedy said they couldn't help it and God said it's vile, it's an error, it's sinful, it's in fact going to receive a just recompense or reward. That kind of behavior, though we now have a Supreme Court that has legalized it and affirmed that as a society we have an endorsement with regard to it, God says it's sinful. He says that's not a respectable marriage. Marriage is holy ground, my friend. It is to be understood as a permanent thing. A man and a woman who enter into it, recognizing it's a compact between themselves and the God of heaven. God's the one joining them. And as such, it's till death do us part. As far as the second point, just as Kennedy attempted to make, that it's somehow something that they can't help. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 6. This is a passage brimming with strength and brimming with answer to the point that's now before us. While you're turning to that passage, let me at least also introduce it by saying the viewpoint that the American people and quite frankly the world at large has had toward homosexual behavior has changed dramatically. There was a time psychiatrists and psychologists considered that those who were homosexual were deranged. They were acting in a way that not only was improper, it was not mentally healthy. And even their literature recorded such, but of course that attitude has now changed. Practicing psychiatrists and those in the psychological business, they no longer subscribe to this. For they think it's just as natural and healthy as any other lifestyle, but let's listen to God. Beginning in verse number 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? There are some behaviors that are not going to go to heaven. Paul, what are they? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. A drunkard can't go to heaven. An extortioner, a reviler, a fornicator, an adulterer. But did you notice what else is in the list? A homosexual. A homosexual, that's the word that's in the ancient Greek text. Now to Justice Kennedy's point, he says they can't help it. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. As Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, some to whom he was writing, they had been adulterers. They had been fornicators. In their history, in their past, some had been revilers and extortioners. And guess what? Past tense verb were, some of them had been homosexuals. But then what does he say? But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our Lord. They had been that way, but they no longer were. What happened? They repented. They repented. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. 
homosexual isn't born that way. It's a choice just like anything else, any other sin. It's not then that one can claim Justice Kennedy was trying to define or legislate or put in place by the judiciary something to identify and help those who couldn't help it. They can help it. It's a choice. Just like a fornicator makes a choice. Just like an extortioner makes a choice to do that. So too a homosexual chooses to live that way. And they can stop. They can repent. Just like for any other sin. Our Supreme Court got it wrong. And so you and I know well what's in all likelihood not going to happen. Coming down the pike in subsequent years is going to be many, many cases in which the aftermath of this is going to come squarely before us. And so now a person, homosexuals that want to get married, and so they want some particular baker to make their cake for them. A person who claims to be a Christian, I can't make a cake for you. And so suddenly now, because the law says you've got to make it, you're going to have a choice to make. Either spend time in jail or you're going to have to close your business. Our faith is going to be tested and tested like it has never been tested before in the aftermath of this. It's not just bakers. It's any Christian who wishes to live his or her faith openly every day, and we all must. Our faith is now going to be tested because the law is not going to side with us. Although the First Amendment says we have a freedom of expression in regard to religion, apparently that will be true everywhere except when homosexual rights are at stake. The law is going to side with them. That's what the Supreme Court said. May you and I have a mindset to remain faithful to God because, again, the Supreme Court is not the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. The Supreme Court has said what we've said this morning. Marriage is holy ground. And though men have tried to whittle away at it, to change it and alter it and remove it from the pristine purity that it once had, he'll never succeed although our society is going to make it hard. May you and I appreciate marriage as God made it. To those among us who are married, be thankful for your spouse. To those of you who are looking forward to that at some point, recognize the biblical teaching concerning it and enter into it in the way that God would have you to. Recognizing you're bound by the law of God as you enter it to remain always faithful to it, to be the kind of husband or wife that you need to be. Today, we've studied about holy ground. Three, three avenues. One is the church. Two is moral purity. And three is marriage. I hope we've each been encouraged and also reminded our faith is going to be tested. If you're not a faithful Christian today, you need to be. You really need to be. You can't make it to heaven on your own. Didn't Jesus say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know you'll never make it to heaven without Him because you must follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, to borrow the words of Revelation 14, 4. Today, if we could perhaps assist you to become a Christian, you realize you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess His great name and be baptized. If you have taken care of that, but as of this very day today, 
things aren't well. Andrew led us in a song earlier, It's Well With My Soul. Could you sing that with gusto? Could you sing it with fervor and ardency? Could you sing it like you really mean it? If there's questions or doubts in your mind, meet with one of our elders or with me. Study with us. Let us talk with you. Eternity's at stake. But if you would wish to come forward today, perhaps confessing sins known publicly, we'd be delighted to pray to God for you. We would, in fact, just ask you to know your confession of those things and repent of them, and God's promised He'll forgive you. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If today we could be of help to you in either of these avenues, we would encourage you and invite you to come and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.